You can either work in the business or you can work on the business. They have the knowledge and skill to be successful. Yesterday is gone and tomorrow has yet to come. Dive all in on the next chapter of your life. Hi, everyone. This is Greg Alexander, the host of the ProServe podcast, brought to you by Collective 54, the first community dedicated to the boutique professional services industry. And on today's episode, we're going to talk about how one's personal life and professional life change as a firm goes through its natural evolution and how critical it is for partners, co-founders to change with the times, so to speak, and how to keep those things in harmony. And if they're not in harmony, um, bad things can happen. And if, if they are in harmony, wonderful things can happen. And we have a couple of Collective 54 members with us today, Matt Jenkins and Nick Moretta. And uh, they are someone who's taught me quite a bit about this subject, and I thought it was worth them sharing what they've shared with me with all of you. So with that, uh, guys, it's good to see you. Welcome to the show. Why don't I let you introduce yourselves, and maybe, Nick, I'll start with you, and then, Matt, we can hear from you. Hi, I'm Nick Moretta. I'm a founding partner here at Other. And uh, I oversee a couple divisions of the business, and uh, I'm a very uh, proud uh, Collective 54 member and father of two. <laughs> Thanks. And Matt? My name is Matt Jenkins, uh, one, of, one of the other uh, founding partners here at Other. Um, I oversee sort of the operations service delivery of the business. I uh, oversee a little bit of client services as well, and I'm uh, uh, a father of one right now. We've got three partners in the business, so two of the three of us are here today. Okay, very good. And for the benefit of the audience, tell me what other is. Yeah, sure. I'll take that one. So we're a 40-person performance marketing firm. We have clients in Canada and the U.S. And really what we do is we help our clients derive the most value from their paid media investments using our proprietary methodology and channels like paid search and paid social. That's really what we do as an organization. Okay, very good. Perfect. All right, so let me start with the first question, which is how have your personal lives changed you know, since the founding of the firm until now? And uh, you know, maybe I'll air traffic control this. Nick, why don't we start with you because you just told me you just had your second kid, so lots of change in your life right now, so this is a timely question. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, I think, I think so. Like, you know, when we started the business, we were super young, right? We were, I think, around 25 years old. And, you know, life has changed a lot. When we started the business, there were super long hours. You know, we were coming home at 11 p.m. or midnight. We were starting at 8 a.m. in the morning. You know, very exciting time in the business to sort of build and get off the ground. But we didn't have a lot of commitments. We didn't have mortgages at the time. We didn't have children. And I think, you know, over the past few years, we've really seen that shift a little bit. You know, all three of the partners at our firm have young kids. I have two kids. Matt has one. Catherine has one. So we're just getting used to that change and making sure that we stay disciplined with creating or integrating uh, both our personal lives and our and our professional lives. So Matt, in terms of the professional life, we just heard from Nick how the personal life had changed over time from you know, being young and full of energy and being willing to burn the midnight oil to a time of adulthood and having obligations, which we all eventually mature to. How has the the professional life, Matt, changed since the founding of the firm? It, it's not it's not that dissimilar to the 
the personal side, if you think about your team in the context of being like your business family, and we don't necessarily refer to our, our team as a family. There's a very different dynamic that happens with your, your team than with your family at home. But, you know, in, in the beginning, I think we spent a lot of time, Nick, Kat, and myself doing the work. We spent, uh, you know, we would go and we would we would find a client and we would bring them on board. And then when we come on board, we were the same people sitting there that needed to do the work um, and actually service what what we'd sold in. And so we spent a significant amount of time doing that in the early days. And, and then you sort of move on and and realize a need to bring on your first team member and and bring them on and you can offload some some work them. Um, but then you need to mentor them and you need to take care of them. You need to look after them. You need to train them. You need to create exposure and upward mobility for them. Um, and then you start to extrapolate that among a larger group of people. And that becomes, you get some time back because you're not doing the work yourself so much anymore. Um, but you're managing and mentoring these people and there's time associated with that. But it frees up some time to be able to grow the business as well. Um, and for myself to start to build some business infrastructure. Um, and so today we're about 40 people and we're across two offices. Uh, we have one in downtown Toronto. We have another one in Ottawa. We work on a principally um, hybrid model um, and we have a couple of different layers of management. Um, and so things change remarkably. We're not really the ones doing too much of the, the actual client work anymore. We're really spending the majority of our time growing the business, continuing to augment the uh, the operating infrastructure and processes uh, and spending a lot of time uh, mentoring and helping our people to grow. So it's a very different uh, vibe today than it was and set of responsibilities today than it was then. Yeah. It's a great uh, il illustrative example for sure. And sometimes people struggle when that happens because they actually enjoy doing the work. And then, you know, I once learned in my life, you know, you go into business for yourself and you think you're working for yourself, but one day you wake up and you realize you're not, you're working for your clients. Then one day you wake up and you're not just working for your clients, you're working for your employees for the reasons that you all just mentioned. And then eventually you wake up one day after you exit and you realize you're not working for your clients, your employees, you're working for your investors. <laughs> so it changes kind of as you go through time, um, but you know you have to go through it to learn it. There were a few things that, that you all shared with me that I wanted to pick on as examples because I think um, our members would be particularly interested in this. So you went from a period of time where you were focused on salaries to now where you're focused on distributions. And that is a big mental model shift. So tell us a little bit about that. When did that happen? And kind of what caused that and how are you dealing with it? Sure. Um I think there's also an important stage actually prior to that, which is the pre-salary stage, which is uh, at the early days where we didn't make any money doing this. Um, so it took some time. It took some time at the beginning. We only put $150 each into this business at the beginning, which was not enough for any sort of payment. Um, and, and we took some risk and uh, we started to build it organically. And um, at the beginning, yes, it's, it's salary, um, from a, a taxation perspective, it's salary, but it's it's significantly based on what we were bringing in on the top line um, and what we're able to take home, and obviously a function of our cost base. And so, in some respect, it's um, in some respect it's it's performance based. Mm -hmm. And then, as we've grown um, over time, we have tried to 
to keep our salary structure commensurate with the work that we might be paying somebody else to do a similar job inside of the organization. So if I'm acting as a, uh, a lead of operations, how much would a lead of operations co uh, cost in the marketplace and uh, structure the compensation around something similar. But at the same time, um, we're still owning the company and uh, our responsibilities to the overall financial performance of the company. And so there starts to become an element that is outside of that, it, that's performance-based distribution. Mm. Um, and so that's the sort of middle stage is that when there's a balance of those two things. And now as we think more about ourselves as the founders of the organization and, and the owners and are less in the work, it's, it's becoming more on the performance compensation side and uh, less of the day-to-day -day compensation of somebody who might be, uh, you know, might be available in the market to occupy that same kind of role. So from sort of nothing to some small salaries, blends of salaries and distributions, and then we're sort of off in the future looking at probably a larger portion of distributions and less salary. There's also uh, the element of taxation that's important along the way, which is having a good tax partner to help you navigate that and making sure that you're, uh, you're earning efficiently is also really important. You know, and, and someday, if you do exit your firm, it's going to make it a lot easier for somebody to buy your firm because they're going to understand what the true cost of operating the business is, which is your salary reflective of what the going rate would be for somebody to perform that job. And then they can separate that from the distributions or the excess profits that you're distributing to yourself right now, which is how an owner would get paid. So you're balancing the two hats of owner-operator extremely well. So that's a lesson for all of our members is that, you know, those, those things are separate. You know, how you're compensated as an operator, which should be market-based, and how you're compensated as an owner, which should be distribution-based, based on excess profit. Okay, let me go to the next one, which was the shift from focusing on utilization, you know, as a measurement of yourselves, to focusing on profits, you know, as a measurement for yourself. It's kind of related to what we just talked about, but the way you run your firm and like the KPIs you look at and et cetera might be slightly different. So Nick, maybe I'll direct this one to you, but how did that evolve inside of your firm? You know what, Greg, I think actually Matt could provide a, a okay. probably better, more concise answer for this one, if you don't mind. Sure. Yeah. To, to be completely transparent, the looking at utilization uh, in the organization is not something that we've always done. Um, it's not something we were taught to do in previous lives. We haven't run professional services business before. And so we were coming into this and we were really focusing our, our time and effort in the earlier stages of the business around some more traditional business metrics. What does top line look like? What does profitability look like? Um, and are those things growing? And we didn't look a whole lot at the science behind what makes the inside of that engine actually work. Mm. And in the last several years, we've spent a lot more time uh, on that. I think there's also a lot more time on that. And we've, we've re-engineered the organizational KPIs around that. They're certainly still top line and profitability um, at an org level. But when we look inside and think about how to manage resources, it's much more focused on target billable gaps and utilization rate and, um, and things like that. Um, but I think there's also a mental shift, which is, at the beginning, kind of like Nick was saying, we're spending uh, until midnight. Like we're not going and tracking that time and the time tracking system and making sure that there's profitability gets it. It's a 
it's a do whatever you need to do at whatever cost to make this client happy so that you can continue to build and grow that relationship. And that worked really well for us in the beginning. It's obviously not a sustainable strategy over a long period of time, but I just want to speak to there's, there's kind of the science part of it, but then there's also the mental shift that we've had to go through to say, okay, how can you manage this uh, really effectively? And I think one of the things that we actually look at that's um, a big topic in our category is that traditionally in advertising and marketing agencies, uh, the notion is that people are overworked. That they come in very early and they stay until very late um, and they they work too much. And I look at that as if there's something broken in your business model if people are doing that. And so if we see somebody in the office at 6.30 or 7 o'clock, I look at that as actually poor management and not somebody who is going above and beyond. Because our economic model should work and our operating model should work such that people can be in the office for the hours that we've allotted to them. So. Uh, yeah, it's shifted in a couple of different ways. I would yeah. say. Great synopsis. All right, so we've talked a lot about how the business has changed and the professional lives have changed. Let's come back to the personal for a moment. You all have this wonderful tool that you called the commitment letter. Um, and I, I thought it was, it literally blew me away. I've never seen anything like it before. I love the symbolism of it, the wet signature. Um, and I, it's so relevant to our community because like you, that's there's three partners. Most pro-serve firms are partnerships. Partnerships need to work. They're kind of like marriages. <laughs> there's got to be compromises. People you need to understand where everyone's coming from. So why don't you tell me about the commitment letter, how it originated, how you're using it today, and maybe at the end of that explanation, give some advice to our listeners as to how they might copycat you on this. Sure. Yeah, I can definitely elaborate on that. So, you know, earlier, I would say earlier this year, late last year, you know, we were approaching, I guess, uh, you know, we're approaching nine years now. We're at eight and a half years old, our firm. And, you know, we're feeling tired. You know, we had all young kids. We're feeling a little bit beat up. And we know that in order to persevere, we have to stay, you know, resilient. And part of the idea behind it was how can we have a commitment letter where we make commitments to each other? Because I think a lot of, you know, us and, and a lot of the members here, maybe they make commitments to themselves. Maybe they're around physical health or mental health. Uh, maybe their commitments around business or family. And sometimes it's difficult to live up to the commitments that you make to yourself. But when you make a commitment to your business partner, you make a commitment to a family member, I always find that, you know, it brings a little bit more uh, skin in the game. Mm. And you want to make sure you live up to your commitments. So the idea was we're going to sit down, we're going to make, you know, a series of commitments around different areas of life. So how do we, we want to commit to becoming better executives. Part of that was actually signing up for Collective 54 so that we could learn and we could educate ourselves on how to become executives. We want to be more accountable to each other. We want to make sure we show up prepared to meetings. We want to make sure we, uh, you know, uh, allude a certain preparation to the rest of the organization. Personal and mental health, uh, you know, physical health and mental health, these are important things. Commitments to exercise, commitments to seeing coaches. So we wanted to make sure that we just had a shared set of principles and commitments that we put down on paper. And then symbolic, like you mentioned, you know, how can we sign this document off? It's not like a legally binding do document. You have your shareholders agreement, but it's more around saying, listen, we sat down and we committed to these things. So we're going to make sure we remain accountable. to them. Mm. Um, and, you know, if I needed to, to give any advice on how someone could get started, you know, perhaps we, we could share the template with you, Greg, and you, you could put it into the, the portal. But I, I really think you have to sit down with your business partners and, and find out. What are the things that are 
you know, you, you're struggling with both personally and professionally. And how can you, how can you commit to resolving some of those things? So, you know, are we operating at peak performance as a partnership group? If we're not, why not? Is it personal? Is it professional? List those things down and then put those series of commitments together and just put a signature against it and say, we're going to commit to this for a year, which is what we did. It's a fantastic uh, story. I'm so glad that you guys have brought this to us. I would very much appreciate the template if, if you wouldn't mind. Um, a couple of quick follow-up questions on it. Um, are the three founders all approximately at the same stage in life in terms of age and things like that? Yes, yes. Yeah. We're All three of us are at very similar stages. You know, that's often overlooked, but it's it's mission critical because imagine a commitment letter. You know, if you have one partner in their 60s, one in their 40s, and one in their 20s, I mean, you just, you just life is different. So it's hard to make, you know, mutually uh, reinforced commitments to each other. So something to think about there for the members. As you were going through the commitment letter, um, was there a negotiation? You know, were you horse trading in any way or was it not, was that not the spirit of the document? I think, you know, uh, negotiation is more of a, a hostile word, right? I think it was more around making sure that they were realistic commitments for everybody. So, hey, listen, we're going to commit to these things. Do, we, do you realistically think you're going to be able to live up to this commitment? So one of them is we need to exercise at a minimum one to two times per week. Do we think that this is realistic? You know, yes, this is realistic. If we came over at four or five times per week, maybe not. Um, so it was really around, are these realistic mm. commitments that we can make to each other? Less around negotiating over the specific thing. Mm. And I will add there that uh, one thing that did have uh, some meaningful discussion around it was actually making it time bound. Mm. Because when we originally put it together, it was put together with no end date on it. Um, it was just, here's the commitment from now until forever. And I think in some ways that when we were trying it for the time, it seemed a little bit daunting. It's like, we're going to commit to this now and then, and and then what? And so what we decided we were going to do is we're going to put a time frame of a year on it. And it also helped us to narrow in and say, okay, uh, what is truly important? If we want to get where we want to be in one year, what is truly important between the three of us? And let's narrow in some of the language um, around that. And then we signed it off for one year. And so when we get back to the end of this year, we'll revisit it and say, you know, what was helpful? What wasn't helpful? What do we think is a priority for next year? And, and we'll we'll do a fresh one or we'll at least do a version uh, of this year's in a, in a modified way. So the time bound piece, I think, has been helpful uh, for us. And that was probably the thing that we discussed the most throughout the process. Yeah. The thing that I love about it the most is that to Nick's earlier comment, you know, I mean, I, I am a habitual offender of commitments to myself. I oftentimes <laughs> blow them off and uh, because, you know, I'm not letting anybody else down other than myself, so therefore I tolerate it. When I make commitments to my team, I mean, I have a tremendous sense of obligation, and I don't want to be that guy, you know, that guy that let down everybody else. It, there's just something about our human psychology that, uh, that that's part of who we are. And if you're structured in a partnership and you really have partners, then it's intensified because, I mean, the last thing you want to do is let your partners down. So I think it's such an effective tool. Well, listen, we're at our, our, our time window here. We try to keep the podcast short. We're going to go into this in much greater depth when we have our private uh, member Q&A session with you all. But on behalf of the membership, it's just wonderful having you guys in the community. Uh, this contribution to the body of knowledge is, is particularly fantastic amongst the many others that you've made over time. So thank you for being here. 
Thank you, Greg. Thank you very much, I really Greg. appreciate you having us on. All right, I'm going to give the audience just three quick calls to action. So uh, members, look for the invitation to attend the Q&A session with Matt and Nick. Um, if you're not a member, you want to become one, go to collective54.com and fill out an application. We'll get in contact with you. And uh, if you're someone who just wants to learn a little bit more, I direct you to our book. You can find it on Amazon. It's called The Boutique, How to Start, Scale, and Sell a Professional Services Firm. Okay, guys, we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Take care.